Let us pray. So, Father, we do pray that indeed we would truly live lives fully surrendered to Jesus and that you would take us to that place of surrender in ever greater depths as we seek your face and as we serve you. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Well, good morning. You may be seated. Good to see all of you here this morning. Looks like a few folks checked out because of the nice fall weather, but um, although it's raining this morning, but it's been beautiful, but good to see all of you this morning. Um, we have um, a couple of folks I want to greet. First of all, it's great to have Reverend Jessica Hughes back from Uganda after two years. She wasn't, she wasn't allowed to leave Uganda last year because of the COVID situation. It's good to see Father Mark Brown and his wife, Christine, as well. Um, my first time to meet Father Mark in person, although I recognize him from diocesan functions before I was rector here, and it's good to have you, and Father Mark served as associate priest here at All Saints Church for quite a few years, so good to have you all here today. We had a wonderful day with our food giveaway yesterday as well, um, and I think Jason may have some pictures to put up, but we served um, bags of food to 130 households yesterday here. And so well done. And thank you, All Saints Church. Thank you all who came out to help yesterday and also uh, Friday and Thursday, um, packaging and sorting things and collecting and, and properly ordering the produce and fresh baked goods and all those wonderful things. And we had a lot of people come through the prayer tent as well. Lots of folks in the community. So thank you all. And just God is doing wonderful things through our food giveaways. We've now been contacting or working um, to provide boxes of food for needy families at some of the schools in the communities as well, in our community as well, through our school counselors. So um, thanks be to God. He continues to open doors for us to bless our neighbors through this and to also meet them where they are spiritually and offer prayer as well. I saw Michael talking at length with a Muslim lady who was in a hajib who came through yesterday. So yes, we're reaching our neighbors and those who probably would not ever be inclined to set foot on our church property if it wasn't for this type of an opportunity. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4 today as we continue our walk through the book of Ephesians. Last week, looking at Ephesians 4, we talked about the foundation of our unity as believers, which is our Lord Jesus Christ himself. We also talked about what unity is and what it is not, and especially that it is not necessarily in any way uniformity, but that it is beautiful diversity that God brings together among us. We also talked about the reality that unity is a choice and that it must be pursued, pursued. And that unity is the result of spiritual fruit, which God grows and produces in our lives, especially humility. We saw that, you know, humility allows us and enables us by God's grace to put the needs of others and the best of the whole body ahead of our, maybe our own preferences or wants or desires. And that godly humility facilitates unity while pride and all the things that go with pride fuels disunity. Picking up today where we left off last week, we're going to focus on verses 7 through 10 of Ephesians 4. And as we look at this, we'll see the first thing is that everything we're talking about today is by God's grace through and through. I know as we're doing this series on Ephesians, there are times when we look at larger passages of Scripture. Today we're looking at just four verses, but um, and larger 
kind of skipping along the peaks of the waves is okay and appropriate at times, but this series in Ephesians is a time to dive deep, to dig deeply into God's word, to look at specific words and phrases, to draw closer to God, to know his will and mind, and to grow, to grow individually and for us to grow as a church family. And there are times where a deep dive is appropriate. I'm reminded of the words from Psalm 119, verse 11. I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 through 17, all scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So again, this Ephesians series is a time to go deep because there's incredibly important truths here in Ephesians. Truths for our growth and for our persevering and growing in God's will for this church and growing in God's unity for this church. And as again, we look at this passage today, the first thing we must remember that is the overarching principle for the entire passage is that everything we're going to talk about today is only by God's grace. It's grace through and through. It's not about what you or I have done or can do through the frailty or feebleness of our own strengths and efforts. We're not talking about something that has been earned or somehow that is deserved by us. It is all by God's grace, by God's unmerited favor and his kindness. And that grace has been extended to every single one of us as believers. It was even extended to us before we came to a living faith in Christ as we talked about a number of weeks ago in Ephesians, this idea of prevenient grace, grace that comes before salvation, grace, if you will, of the, the front porch. It's grace through and through from start to finish. And it's given to every one of us who truly knows Christ. As we're reminded in the prologue to John's gospel in John chapter one, from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And then in verse 7 of our Ephesians reading today, but the grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. To each one of us, every single one of us who knows Christ, grace has been given as Christ has apportioned it according to the measure of Christ's gift. What does that tell us? Well, I think there are five things that we can see from this truth. First of all, it tells us that every single one of us, every single one of you are an important and valued part of this church. You're valued and God will use you here. Second, it tells us that every one of us has a role and ministry to carry out, that God has placed his graces in our lives, his giftings in our lives by his grace, and that he calls us here to be used as the people he's gifted us to be. Third, it tells us that in true Christ-given unity, as we talked about last week, there's a beautiful diversity of gifts and graces. Different people are given by God, by his grace, different giftings, different gifts. 
And it is really by God's grace. It's interesting that the Greek word for grace is charis and the Greek word for gift is charismata, which is grace gifts, which reminds us that all of these things we're talking about, again, are by God's grace. The fourth thing we see is this, and we're going to expound on this a little bit more. It tells us and reminds us as we look at this passage that it is Christ who is the giver. That means that since Jesus gives his graces and gifts, there is no place among God's people for jealousy or coveting the grace given to another or coveting the gifts given to another. Your gifts and mine are for the building up of the church and for the edification of God's people. We're to build one another up. We're to build up Christ's church. And our gifts should not be a badge of pride or spirituality because they're by God's grace. And there certainly is no place for jealousy that I want what he or she has need to learn to be used with what God is entrusting to us. I like what St. John Chrysostom wrote in the fourth century. If for this you have received a gift that you might edify others, look well that you do not overturn yourself by envying another. Then in Romans chapter 12, St. Paul writes, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. All of this also reminds us that there is no pecking order with gifts. And I think sometimes in the world and the culture we live in, we even as Christians create this pecking order where more public or more demonstrative gifts somehow are viewed as more spiritual or superior to those gifts that involve working behind the scenes, perhaps prayer and as intercessors and serving and, and things like that and helps all of these gifts or by God's grace, and there is no pecking order. It's not like the world around us. And yet, I think sometimes, actually often, that kind of thinking creeps into the church where we evaluate people and we evaluate churches and we evaluate ministries by worldly temporal standards. And all of a sudden, because someone is leading a church of 10,000 people, pastoring a church of 10,000 people, somehow... They are spiritually superior to a pastor who has served faithfully in a church of 50 for years and years and years. And too often Christian resumes, if you will, you read about a pastor speaking at a conference or an event coming up and you start ticking down the list and you could be going to a Dale Carnegie seminar if you just pulled a few Christian words out of it because it's all worldly temporal measures, you know. Led this, has this degree, served in this capacity, had this number of this and this number of that. And that's not how God measures things in his kingdom. Matter of fact, sometimes it can be just the opposite. How often have we seen it where a, a business person, and this is not a knock on business people, but is put on a pedestal as a Christian simply because they're a successful or prominent business person. And frankly, their spiritual life might be a train wreck. There is not an equation or a correlation necessarily between success in the world and faithfulness in God's kingdom. I like what Henry Nouwen writes in his book, The Selfless Way of Christ. And I would, it's a very small book with very large print. You can read this book in a day or two. 
And I recommend this book to every Christian. This is a small, short book, but it is a profoundly impacting book. I remember the first time I read it, I've read it a lot of times now. It profoundly impacted my life as a Christian. But I just want to read a short excerpt here from this book. The title of the book is The Selfless Way of Christ. The subtitle is Downward Mobility and the Spiritual Life. He says this. The spiritual life is the life of the spirit of Christ within and among us. The Holy Spirit leads us on the downward way, not to cause us to suffer or to subject us to pain and humiliation, but rather to help us to see God present in the midst of our struggles. Just as we came to see God in the downward way of Christ, so we will become conscious of truly being sons and daughters of God by becoming participants in this downward way, the way of the cross. The gospel depicts Jesus on the eve of his death, making clear to his disciples that their ministry is possible only because they no longer belong to the world and its ways. In his priestly prayer to his father, he says, they do not belong to the world any more than I belong to the world. It is this not belonging that is the basis for their mission. I am not asking you to remove them from the world, but to protect them from the evil one. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. In these words, Jesus tells us that the spirit by whom we participate in the divine life is the same spirit who allows us to be in the world without being of it. Three temptations by which we are confronted again and again are the temptation to be relevant, the temptation to be spectacular, and the temptation to be powerful. All three are temptations to return to the ways of the world of upward mobility and divert us from our mission to reveal Christ to the world. God calls us to be obedient to the way of the cross. Finally, what we see here tells us that the grace given to each one, the grace each one of us has received is different. Hear this. But the difference doesn't define the value. Each grace that we have received is different, but the difference doesn't define the value. Again, this is from Christ. Christ has given us his grace. And the thing that enhances or diminishes the value of the grace each of us has received is our use of the gift and graces to us within the body. Let me repeat that. The thing that enhances or diminishes the value of the gift, the grace that each of us has received, is our use of Christ's gift and graces to us within the body. In other words, how we then live into the grace God has poured into our lives. It's kind of like um, a student in school, or maybe some of you can remember in college. It's not necessarily the most gifted or the most brilliant person that gets the best grades because they, they've gotten to a place where they don't study and they think they can coast along and just kind of Use what's there, the residual that's what's there, but the one who leans in and the one who presses in is the student who really excels. It's the same with spiritual gifts in a sense where opening ourselves to being used by God and being faithful stewards of that grace as he has entrusted to us is what makes the difference. It's also like, and I'm not speaking of anyone that any of you would know, so just don't let your minds go there. Um, I've seen pastors over the years who were incredibly gifted and compelling speakers. But their greatest gift sometimes is also their greatest shortcoming because they were so good 
at speaking extemporaneously. They were so gifted at speaking kind of off the cuff. They never did the hard work and the preparation and laying the foundation that meant what they said and the vision that they were casting became sustainable because they were always kind of winging it. We need to realize the importance of not squandering the giftings, the grace that God has entrusted to us. Grace that has been given to each and every one of us. Secondly, grace comes to each one through one. Verses 8 through 10. The grace each of us has received is through Jesus. But how? How did he accomplish this? Well, look at verses 8 through 10 with me. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. St. Paul here is quoting from Psalm 68, verse 18 in a somewhat paraphrased way, giving an, and giving an explanation. But what does all of this have to do with grace and gifts Jesus has placed in his body, the church? Well, stick closely with me here because it has everything. It has everything to do with these things. Jesus is the eternally existent son of God from time and eternity past. The scriptures affirm this. John chapter 1 verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that has been made. Colossians 2.9. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Jesus Christ is God the son. The second person of the trinity. And this same Jesus descended from heaven to earth, as it says here in Ephesians, into the lower regions, the earth. He came as a man while still being fully God. Philippians 2 talks about this in beautiful detail as we saw last Sunday. Jesus came to earth. And not only did he come, but he lived a sinless and perfect life. He died on a cross bearing my sin and your sins. And he rose on the third day. And 40 days later, he ascended back to heaven where he is rightfully enthroned in all of his glory. The lamb of God who was slain now seated on the throne. Now I know that we know all of this. But these truths always bear repeating. They bear repeating regularly. They bear being re-emphasized because it is essential. It is the very core of what we believe and who we are as Christians because of what Christ has done. And why did he do this? Because it was the only way. If he hadn't been raised from the grave, if he was still there, death would not have been defeated. If Christ had been defeated, there would be no grace to give. But he did rise. He arose the victor over Satan. He arose the victor over death and the grave. That's why we repeat this every Sunday in the prayer of consecration in the Eucharistic liturgy. And we use what is known as the ancient renewed text, um, which goes all the way back to the late second and early third century to Hippolytus. And here's what's important about that. Why am I emphasizing this? Because this connects us to the early church because Hippolytus 
was a student of St. Irenaeus. Irenaeus was a student of Polycarp, and Polycarp himself was a student of the Apostle John. See how close that gets us to the apostles and to the apostolic period. And every Sunday, when we come to the Lord's altar to receive the body and blood of Christ, in those prayers we say, and we are reminded, and we affirm, holy and gracious Father, in your infinite love you made us for yourself. And when we had sinned against you and become subject to evil and death, you, in your mercy, sent your only Son, Jesus Christ, into the world for our salvation. By the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, he became flesh and dwelt among us. In obedience to your will, he stretched out his arms on the cross and offered himself once for all, that by his suffering and death, we might be saved. Now listen to this. By his resurrection, he broke the bonds of death, trampling hell and Satan under his feet. As our great high priest, he ascended to your right hand in glory that we might come with confidence before the throne of grace. God has indeed exalted Jesus to the highest places, Philippians 2 reminds us, and given him a name that is above every name. And when he ascended, verse 8 tells us, on, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Through the final death blow that Jesus Christ has dealt to Satan, sin and death at Calvary, brothers and sisters, we are free. We can know forgiveness. We can know power over sin and the grave. We can know the life of Christ as an eternal reality. And God is pouring into our lives his gifts and graces. Romans 5 reminds us, for if we, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Jesus and Jesus alone can say, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Christ has conquered. Christ is victor. Christ is king seated on the throne. And from that place of authority, he in his grace gives gifts to us as his believers. He pours his grace into our lives. And that grace is through and through only through the one who can give it, Jesus Christ. And how is it given? Well, back up again to Ephesians chapter 2 that we looked at some weeks ago. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. Do you understand that? That God prepared beforehand good works for you and for me and for all saints' church to walk in for his glory. It's grace through and through. And when we come to understand this, brothers and sisters, it radically alters and continues every day to radically alter our perspective and our understanding of things. Because it's not about us. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about personal ambition or preferences or desires. It's not about personal promotion or climbing the ladder 
Because really it must be this. Christ must increase and we must decrease. And as we decrease and Christ increases, that creates more and more space for him to work by his grace and the power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish what he wills and desires and plans to accomplish in and through us for those good works which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And as we do that, as we yield, as we surrender more and more fully, as we sang just a little while ago, he will do his good and gracious work. He will stir up all of his gifts in and among his people. And then he will do what we could never accomplish through the frailty and feebleness of our own strength. As we fix our eyes on him, he will accomplish through us that which is his will for this church, for our lives, for our families, and that which is this will for this community. Even as yesterday people came and received food, people encountered the living Jesus through us and through the prayers that were offered, both on their behalf before they came and while they were here, and people that were prayed for and ministered to. And there's a touching and a power that goes out when we do these things according to God's grace that has nothing to do with us or our strength because it's the life of Christ himself flowing out and touching those people. And my prayer is that he would continue to do that in ever greater measure as we reach our community and as we grow into the people he's calling us to be by his grace. Let us pray. Father, we stand in awe of what you have done for us. And it's all grace, undeserved, unmerited, and yet you love us that much. Not only that you would send your son to redeem us, but that you would use us according to your plan and your purposes. That you have in Christ prepared us for good works to do and to carry out in your power for the glory of your name. So Lord, in the unity that you give us with you and with one another, help us to set aside our preferences, our wants, to set aside self and ambition, and to be who you're calling us to be together for the glory of your name, that this community would be blessed and that Christ would be lifted up. And we ask these things in his mighty name. Amen.